That's the key to our worship, isn't it? Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. That's, that's why we're here. That's why we come to this place on any given Sunday morning, and that is to give our, glory, our Lord the glory to worship Him, to learn from Him. Today I received a gift, or this week I received a gift, and it was one of the favorite gifts that I received this week. It's a gift that I probably will never wear, but it's a, it's a gift from a friend of mine, Trey Brooks. He sent me this t-shirt, free hugs. So today and today only, free hugs. <laughs> if you know me, you know that I'm really not a hugger. Oh, I've gotten a little bit better at it over the years. That kind of goes with the territory of being a pastor and loving on your people. You learn to hug. It, it, but it's, it's not easy for me. But today, but today only, free hugs. <laughs> I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 12 through 15. And today, I want you to just kind of hold that place in your electronic Bible or your Bible there and just hold your finger there. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures, but I don't want you really flipping around because I want us to focus today on the text. I entitled this message, No Regrets. And the question is, can we live our life in such a way that we have no regrets? Is it possible that we can live from this point on with no regrets? And you say, Rex, I'm not sure because of our humanity. And we're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to fail. But as far as in, can we live? I, th- I think we can answer that question, yes. With God, all things are possible. So how do we live our lives in such a way that we live with no regrets? I have a ladder up here, and the ladder's up here for a purpose. You may not know this, but um, I have an uncanny sense of balance. Um, if you've been to the church in the last five years, you probably know that. But if you're new to the church, I haven't used this illustration in at least three years. And I have an uncanny As a high school student, I was a gymnast in high school, and, and every day I would uh, do front rolls up and down the mats. We did that to train our equilibrium. And of course, we'd work on the high bars and the trampolines. And, and you learn, you have this sense of uh, body awareness. And you know exactly where you are at any point in time in a flip, in a routine. And those who are gymnasts can look at me and say, I know exactly what he's talking about. There's an awareness of where you're at because of that experience in gymnastics. I, I also rode a unicycle. As a boy, I probably got it when I was 10 or 11 years of age, and, and my mom bought me this unicycle, and I learned to ride it in my basement around the picnic table because I got it at Christmas time. And then spring came, and I rode that unicycle all over my hometown of Xenia, Ohio. I, I would hop up on curbs and down on curbs. I could go up steps on that unicycle. I, I had learned because I had this uncanny sense of balance to negotiate my way through gravel roads and dirt paths and to Boy Scouts and back home again. I I love that unicycle. I've had this uncanny sense of balance over the years, but the reality is I have fallen 
many times. You see, when you have an uncanny sense of balance, you think, well, I know it says danger, do not stand or sit. But that applies to you because you're a normal person. I have an uncanny sense of balance. And so I can stand. Even this past week, uh, we had a guard go off one of the light covers. And uh, so I stood on top of this ladder where it says, Danger, do not stand, and fixed the light fixture. Why? Because I have an uncanny sense of balance. And yet the reality is, because I think I have an uncanny sense of balance, I have fallen often over the years. As a teenage boy, I was challenged and to be the first across the ice. We showed up to play hockey that day, but the ice was a little too thin, and as you would go out, it would creak and make noise. And so one of the guys says, I'll give you 50 cents if you make it across. And so for 50 cents, I thought I could do this. I'm light. I'm nimble, I'm fast, I can make it across the ice. And so I began, and, and as soon as you get across that first section, it gets thicker. And the center of the ice is pretty solid, but I still had to go across to the other side. And as I got closer and closer to the edge, I could hear the cracks and the creaks, and, and all of a sudden, plunk, <laughs> in the water I went. You see, we're in trouble when we avoid the danger signs in life. I, the truth is, I have fallen all over the world. I, I fa- fell in Peru, South America. A district superintendent's his house needed some repair on the roof, and it was kind of, well, the, it wasn't timbers like we have here. It was kind of homemade, carved out, a little flimsy. And I, well, I have an uncanny sense of balance. And so I, I thought, I can do this, and I walked out and, and slipped a little bit. I didn't fall all the way through the roof, only partially through the roof. In Toronto, Canada, I climbed up a ladder and, and fell off that ladder. And south in Springdale, Ohio, we built a mountain for a musical, Elijah. It was a story of, of God bringing down the fire for Elijah. And we had this huge mountain. The platform was 60 feet wide, the mountain itself. And then it was about 15, 20 feet tall. It was all made out of cardboard. I did not schedule the date. The date for this first musical, my being the youth pastor of the church there at Springdale, was scheduled for me. They had a wedding on Saturday, and so our performance was on Sunday. That means we had to to construct the entire set overnight. We built the set ahead of time. We built it up, tore it down, built it up, tore it down, kind of rehearsed what we were going to do. And that evening, we all came together. It was about 2 a.m. in the morning, and and we're still working on making this great big mountain out of paper and cardboard boxes and lights, and we'd work weeks and weeks and weeks preparing all the materials for this great mountain. When the fire of God came coming, falling down, that altar would disappear behind flash pots. I mean, it was awesome what we prepared. That night I was up on scaffolding, three or four scaffolding high, The mountain was built around the scaffolding with stairs going up to the scaffolding. And I was standing on the edge of the scaffolding on a a board. Uh, It was probably 10 inches wide, 2 inches 
thick, a long board from side to side, and I didn't realize where I was at, and I got a little too far to the edge, and I could feel the board coming up behind me. And by that time, it was too late, and the board was headed towards the grand piano. I saw it, and so I I kicked the board out of the way, and and I threw my legs up, and I was like, I can't believe I did this, and landed in the boxes. You see, we're in trouble when we think, you know what, that applies to them. It doesn't apply to me. I have an uncanny sense of balance. We find ourselves in trouble when we realize that we, we're just at risk of falling just like everybody else. And yet often in life, our greatest regrets, relationally, financially, morally, ethically, could have been avoided if we established some boundaries if we would have yielded to the danger signs all around us what if you were to have boundaries in your life margins what if you were to establish some mental boundaries that kept you safely from disaster relationally some mental boundaries that kept you safe from disaster financially some mental boundaries that kept you safe from disaster ethically and morally? What if you established some boundaries in your life that kept you from falling spiritually? You see, society tempts us to the edge of disaster relationally, financially, morally. Society says, oh, you can afford that car. You deserve that car. And we're tempted. I mean, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that's the one I'm wanting, the lust of the eyes. We, we look at stuff, those things, oh, I'd like that jacket. I've been looking at a ski jacket, and it's marked down to $207. That's not unreasonable for a really nice ski jacket, but I'm not going to spend $207. So I've been going into Dick's and waiting for them to mark that clearance. It's already been marked on clearance, but I'm waiting for them to say 50% off. <laughs> but... It's the lust of the eyes, you know, oh, I want that. I want that thing. Now, I, I, I don't need to spend on that jacket, but, I mean, I'm a skier. And i got to look good as a skier, and so, you know, we want those things. A heart wants what it wants, right? And so we go after those things, and it's the lust of the eyes. And, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves in financial trouble. Spent more than we could afford. Our debt is greater than we can afford. And so what if we were to establish some boundaries in our life? You see, society tempts us to the edge of disaster relationally, financially, and morally. And if we fall, society mocks us. What an idiot. What was he thinking? We say it to ourselves. Our self-talk is negative. And we beat ourselves up. Society tempts us to the edge of disaster, and when we fall, they mock us. As if to justify their own moral decay. Well, at least I'm not like that guy. But we say, don't worry. I got this. I can, I can handle this. Don't worry about me. I, I, I got this. Oh, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll make it work. And we leverage what we have to make it work without any boundaries. 
and trying to be, live a generous, generous life is almost impossible for us. We say, I've got this. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. You see, when we think, I've got this, relationally, financially, morally, ethically, we're in trouble falling, aren't we? We need to have some boundaries, some guidelines in our lives. That's why it's important for us to come together as a family of faith. Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. It's in a place like this that we learn boundaries. It's in Sunday school, in small groups, it's in rows and in circles that we learn how to walk as Christ walked. I want us to quickly look at the stages of temptation found in James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. You see, it is that lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life that trips us up. When our own evil desires were dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What if we were to establish some boundaries? When tempted by our own evil desires, we say, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to click on that box. I'm not going to look at that image. Oh, but it's just an image. It's just a picture. It's art. And before we know it, we're trapped by our own evil desires. And the pornographic has grabbed control of our lives. And we suffer the images that have grabbed a hold of us. We are tempted by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We say, oh, I, I, I got this. I, I can make this work. And we find ourselves trapped by our own evil desires. Now let's look at Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. As we look through these verses, we're going to look at the practicality of living an obedient life. The promise of living an obedient life and the purpose of living an obedient life. Scripture says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. The charge here is to follow the example of Christ. Therefore, it reminds us to look back, to examine the willingness of Christ to humble himself, to come as a babe in a manger. He was fully God, but he came as man, and he lived among us, and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for you and for me. And then he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear 
and trembling. To which we say, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. What, what do you mean work out? I, I thought we were saved by grace and not by works. And in fact, we are. We are saved by grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, but a gift of God. So, so what does he mean, work out your salvation? Well, the word here literally means to take hold, to grasp, to understand, to comprehend what it means to be a follower of Christ. Matter of fact, if you skip forward in Philippians to Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, you will find these words. Let us live up to what we have already attained. So working out our salvation is living up to what we have already attained. At the age of 19, uh, I was a lifeguard at a pool. I'd been a lifeguard when I, uh, my senior year of high school, my freshman year of college, and now it was after my sophomore year of college, and I was now the manager of this pool. I had the title manager. But I have to be honest with you, that very first day I did not feel much like a good manager. Well, we made all the preparations. I had scheduled the workers. I had 36 employees that worked for me at the pool. But on that first day when we opened, it was very, very hot. And we had 1,500 patrons come through this large public pool on that very first day. That night, we closed up, and I began to train the employees how to clean uh, the facility. And typically, we would be done by 8.30, but since they were new, to the task, it took us till 10 o'clock that night to get everything done. And then I began to count the money. As I grabbed the materials to, to count the money that evening, I, I'd never counted money before. This was new to me. I'd been a lifeguard for two years, but I never sat in the office and counted the money. There were many basic things that I did not understand. It was new to, I had the title manager, but I didn't really know what was involved in managing so I began to count out the money. I watched my dad do this for years working in retail, and he could whip through that money in no time. And I started to count out the dollar bills, and I gathered up all the change and realized there were no quarter wrappers or nickel wrappers. or di- There was nothing there for me to separate the change. And the majority of what we received that day was in change. We collected 50 cents for every child and a dollar for every adult, and so there was a lot of change. I began to make stacks of quarters, and I was counting them and counting them and counting them, and, and it was 2 in the morning, and I'm still counting quarters, and, and I hit the table, and all the quarters fall to the floor. <laughs> Finally, in desperation, I gave up, and I put an estimate. <laughs> <laughs> and I raked all the money into the bank bag, and I went to the bank that night and made the deposit. The next morning, I showed up, and apologetically said, I'm sorry, uh, and told them what had happened. I didn't feel like a very good manager. I didn't feel like I had it all together. But I was working out what it meant to manage. I was beginning to grab and to grasp what it meant to manage people and money and all that. And within a few weeks, those Tasks became very easy. We were out of, the, out of there by 8.30 at night. I could count all the money in 15 minutes. I had all the tools and the resources I needed to do the job well. I became a good manager. 
but I had to work it out in such in much the same way as Christians. We we accept Christ as our Savior and Lord. The old is gone, the new has come, but the old is still here. I still have debts, I still have problems, I still have situations that I dug myself into. The language of the past is still there. I'm inundated. I, I often don't feel like a very good Christian, but I have the title. And Paul here is telling us to work out our salvation, to come to grips with what has already been attained for us in Christ Jesus. Hold on to it. Understand it. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those of us who may have been in this faith relationship for a while, we may say, you know, Rex, I still struggle. I struggle, if I'm honest, with anger and jealousy and worry and trust. and I struggle with relationships and finances and ethics and morality. How do I live my life in such a way that I have no regrets? You see, we can take this scripture to heart. We take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. Do you see it there? Continue to work out your salvation. Continue to grasp and to understand all that Christ has done. To live up to all that has already been attained for you. So how do we live our lives in such a way that we have no regrets? I want us to look briefly at three questions that are pertinent to this question. And that is this. What boundaries, what guidelines have you established in your life? What guidelines have you established? What boundaries have you established with your friendships? The reality is is if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, you've turned from your wicked ways, and you begin to walk towards righteousness and holiness, and you will find that you are traveling in the opposite direction of so many around you. And there's conflict because we're going in opposite directions, relationally, ethically, morally, financially. And in this situation, have you established some clear boundaries? Let me ask you this question. Your friends... Teenagers, your friends, are they helping you grow spiritually? Are they pulling you in the opposite direction of Christ? You see, unless we establish some some clear boundaries, we'll find ourselves in trouble. The reality is this isn't just an adolescent issue. Our Our friends impact the direction and the quality of our lives. And, it, and you can work, it can either work for you, these friendships, or it can work against you. Consider this many of our greatest regrets evolve, revolve around our friends. You may have never made that decision if it wasn't for the friends that you were hanging out with at that time. Proverbs 13:20 says it this way Walk with the wise, and you will become wise. That's a promise. Walk with the wise, and you 
will become wise. That's why it's important that we gather in this place, worship in rows, and sit in circles. And we walk with fellow believers in Christ. We encourage one another in the faith. Walk with the wise and you will become wise. That's a promise. For the companion of fools suffers harm. And that's a warning. The top half of this verse is a promise. The second half is a warning for us. It says, wisdom is contagious. Surround yourself with people who are wise and you will be wise. Surround yourself with people who make good decisions morally, ethically, relationally, financially. Choose your friends wisely. You've probably heard that all your life from your parents and you get sick of hearing it. But it's wise. Proverbs says, walk with the wise and you will become wise. For the companion of fools suffers harm. Now here's the warning. The warning is not that you, will, that you are a companion of fools and you will become a fool. No, the companion of fools, whether they adopt the lifestyle or philosophy of the fools, will suffer harm. The warning is not that you will become a fool, but you will suffer harm. You see, the reality is when we associate, when we avoid the warning signs and the Word of God, we're in jeopardy of being hurt by those around us. Pulled in things that we would not choose. We, we, we climb up the ladder and we say, oh, I'm just going to go to the party, but I'm not going to participate. But we all know someone who was hurt because they were a companion of fools. They were harmed because of their association with those around them. So my question is, are your friends helping you to grow in your faith? Are they pulling you away from your faith? Have you established some boundaries in your own life that keeps you from falling? What boundaries have you established concerning your sexuality? You see, you can fully recover from financial disaster, educational disaster, or professional disaster. But the Scripture says, flee from sexual immorality. Then it says, all other sin a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Flee. It doesn't say flirt. It says flee. But we answer, oh, I can, I can avoid the danger signs because I'm strong. I'm not tempted by that. That's not a problem for me. That's a non-issue. And we click on that site. We click on that opportunity. We flirt, flirt, flirt instead of flee, flee, flee. And before we know it, we're caught up. Oh, yeah, but it's it just, it's, it's harmless. She's just talking to me at my desk. It, it's harmless. My wife, when we were younger, would often tell me, Rex, you have to, you, you, Rex, I think you're naive sometimes. This is where the hugging thing came in. You have to be careful how you treat those teenage girls. You need to keep your distance. You're naive to these things. I said, oh, honey, no, no, that's not the case. She said, trust me. 
you're being naive. And she helped me to have some boundaries. And so I made sure when I hugged teenage girls, I didn't hug them like this. I always hugged them, if at all, arm to shoulder. Always staying above reproach. You see, we have to set boundaries in our lives. How do we live life with no regrets? We set boundaries guided by the Word of God. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if any man looks upon a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery in his heart. And so we have to guard our heart. We have to set boundaries that keep us from moving to that place of lust and adultery in our lives. As we read this scripture, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins or a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. We think to ourselves, that's exactly what I want my husband to hear. That's exactly what I want my wife to hear. But far too often we flirt, flirt, flirt. That's for other people. You see, I have an uncanny sense of balance. The danger sign doesn't apply to me. And yet they're flashing all around us. And you should establish some guidelines, some boundaries in your own life that keep you from harm, from danger. The third question is, what boundaries have you established concerning your finances? You see, the chief competitor for our heart is is our money. It's our wealth. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your, answer the question, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why? It's because how, it's how we were made. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. He either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When our children were younger, whenever they would get allowance, we would stick that allowance in jars. The first jar was for the church, 10%. So they got a dollar, 10 cents went into the jar for the church. The second jar was savings. And so if they got a dollar, 10 cents went into savings. And the third jar was for living, for whatever they wanted. It was theirs to do with as they chose. We, we wanted to teach our children the principle of tithing. Why? Because we wanted the church to have their money. Why? Because the church needed their money. The missions of the church couldn't happen without their money. No, we knew that the tr- where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We wanted our children to understand, to grasp this basic principle of giving. Saving and living. Giving in the Lord 10%, saving 10%, and living on the rest. Sometimes we think, you know, that's, that's impracticable. Impractical when you make very little income. When I have very little money, I don't know how it's practical for me to give, save, and live. This past week we had a funeral service for, for Dwight Bridges. And Dwight had a meager income. He worked at Rogers. He, he never probably made a great salary. Matter of fact, he was probably hourly wage to all of his life, working as a grocer at Rogers. But I can tell you, Dwight tithed faithfully. 
And he saved faithfully. And he lived off the rest. He would pick up nickels and dimes and quarters on the parking lots at Rogers and and he would collect that and put it in his alabaster box and bring it to the church. You see, it was important to him because he knew where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Here was this guy on a meager wage, and yet he had more than enough because the principle of God is true. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. So we need to establish some boundaries in our lives financially. That's why we encourage our people to be involved in financial peace. So that we can have peace when it comes to our finances. So that we can live lives of generosity. So that we can be those who make interest and not pay interest throughout our lives. Financial independence is living independently of serving your money. I can... I can live my life and am devoted to God and money if, just, if, if it's just stuff. I don't serve it, but it serves me. And so it's important that we have some boundaries when it comes to our finances. Proverbs 27 says, The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. We often think to ourselves, I can manage this. I, I, I got this. And we overextend ourselves. And all of a sudden we're a slave to our finances instead of being a master of what God has given us. And the way we stop that, the way we change that, is to create some boundaries, some guidelines in our lives. I'm driving a 2003 Chevy Malibu. It's green and ugly. It's the ugliest car I've ever owned. I bought it at the right price. I only paid 6000 for it. It only had 17,000 miles. It was a gift from God. As far as I was concerned, my, my uh, wife's grandfather, when he could drive no longer, he offered me the car for that. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, if you'll sell it to me for trade-in, I'll buy it. For wholesale, I'll buy it. I thought he wouldn't sell me, sell it to me for that. And when he said $6,000, I had no choice. I had already made a commitment. And, and so I bought the car for $6,000 and I've driven it for 150,000 miles. It's been the best car I've ever owned as far as no maintenance and no problems. And, but more importantly that, than that, it helps me to, to be able to establish other goals, financial goals. Because I'm not a slave to paying that payment. I'm not a slave to making car payments at all or paying off credit card payments you see we have to set boundaries in our lives so that we can manage our lives in such a way that we're a blessing to the world around us the promise of obedience verse 13 for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose it is God who does the work can I live a life with no regrets? Eh, probably not in your own strength. But when we realize it is God, it is God who works in you to will and act according in order to fulfill His good purpose. To effectively manage the pool, I, I needed to realize the authority I had as the manager of the pool. I had a whistle. 
Anyway, believe, I, I trust that I have a whistle. There it is. And as the manager of the pool, um, you know, there was a lot of good things about that job. I loved that job, really. Uh, I was a lifeguard part-time. I was in the office part-time. I got to work with a great staff of people, and it was learning skills that I never knew that I had doing that job. You know, I got to swing my whistle around and blow it at children. And, it, and I, I had all the authority that I needed with this whistle. You know, a child would run across, I'd say, blow my whistle and walk. And they would immediately start walking. I mean, there was power in this whistle. Uh, but being a manager, you know, everything, all the problems would fall on you. And, uh, you know, some of the problems were simple. Um, you know, I would have people ask me, do you think we should clean up the tables after people are finished? Yeah, that's your job. You're, you know, you're in charge of the concessions. You know, throw away the trash, wipe down the table. Don't ask me obvious questions. You're, you know, that's your job. But I, I was blown away as a manager how people would ask me obvious questions. You think I ought to clean up this mess? Yeah, you're here. You know, clean up the mess. And, but it wasn't always that easy. One time I uh, had a gentleman come. He was 26 years of age. I was 19. I was the youngest manager they'd ever hired. And uh, here I was 19 years of age, and this guy was probably 6'2", 6'3", and I'm all 5'8", 5'7 and and, uh, and this guy comes to the pool, and instead of just swimming in a Speedo suit, which is hard enough to take, um, he took this little Speedo and he tied it in the front and in the back and made it like a string bikini. And, and it wasn't attractive. I mean, it just wasn't attractive at all. And it was a public pool, and it just wasn't appropriate. It was just inappropriate. And so I went to him, and I began to talk to him. I said, sir, I, I can't allow you to swim in the pool with this uh, swimsuit. I said, you have two options. You can go uh, take the strings out of that suit and swim with, as, with it as a Speedo, or you can uh, put on some jean shorts, which he already told me he had, and you could swim in that. Now, that was kind of against the rules, but I thought I'd bend the rule a little bit to keep him there and just to keep him happy. And after all, he was 26 and I was 19, and he towered over me. And uh, he began to argue with me. So there are girls here who have less on than I have. I said, no, they don't. And that's inappropriate. You can't wear that in public. And he said, yeah, well, he said, what are you going to do about it? I said, well... I said, sir, I'm going to ask you not to wear it. He said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Then I said, sir, I want you to look around the pool. See that lifeguard over there? He has a phone at his stand. And that lifeguard over there has a phone at his stand. And that lifeguard over there, has a, she has a phone at her stand. And that lifeguard over there, they're all aware of our conversation. And if we have a problem at all, you and me, they're going to kick their phone off the stand and they're going to come to me. And they're going to close the pool down. And then they're going to come to me. And then in the glass here in the office, there's a person. You see this person? That person leaned forward so they could be seen in the glass. They're instructed to call the police if I have any problem. And if I ask you to leave, you'll be trespassing. You see, this whistle gives me the authority to throw you out. You may be taller than I am. You may be older than I am. But I have the authority to ask you to leave. And if I ask you to leave, the police will come. They will arrest you. You will be fined for trespassing. 
and they will physically carry you off the premises. Now the choice is yours. That day he chose to put on jean shorts. You see, I had all the authority, all the power that came with the whistle, with the title of being manager. And as followers of Christ, we have all the power and all the authority that comes to us from Christ. Do you see it there? For it is God who works in you. It's not in your strength. It's not in my strength. It is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Can we live a life with no regrets? Yes. As we submit to the authority of God in our lives. As we follow His direction. As we sit and listen to the Holy Spirit. As we learn from the Word of God. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to His good purpose. That's the promise of obedience. In verse 14 and 15 we look at the purpose of obedience. It says, do everything without complaining or arguing. To which we say, uh, uh, but, but I've got this, I've got this. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children. The old is gone, the new has come. The sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you. So you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault. But I have so many faults. You're right. God isn't finished with you yet. In a crooked and depraved generation. Why? In which you shine like stars in the universe. That's the purpose of obedient, being obedient. So that we can shine like stars in the universe. The world around us, Heather's going to come and lead us. Our Keith is going to come and lead us. I will serve thee because I love thee. The world around us baits us to the edge. Baits us to the edge of compromise. But our call is to shine like stars. To be salt and light. Be an example you see it there? Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become what? Blameless and pure. How do you become blameless and pure? By submitting to God. Who will and act according to His good purpose. Pure children of God without fault. <laughs> How do I live a life of no regrets? It's a life of surrender. It's a life that establishes some clear boundaries I listen to the Holy Spirit danger I allow the word of God to be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path danger I allow him to transform me by the renewing of my mind the old is gone, the new has come he replaces my jealousy, my anger, my fear my frustration and he gives me the fruits of the spirit Love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Why? So we might be a shining star in the universe. So my question to you today is this. Will you be obedient? 
today, tomorrow, and the next day. No matter what comes, I will serve thee because I love thee. No matter what hardship comes, no matter what problem comes, I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. I'm going to be a person who takes what little I have and allow God use it, to use it for His glory. Why? Because that's His call. He calls us to a life.